If you have your Bibles with you this morning, open with me once again to 1 Peter. If you didn't bring your Bibles, uh, it, the passage for this morning is, of course, in your bulletins or on page 1014 of the blue Bibles that are in front of you. So this letter began, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Peter addresses his hearers, his recipients of this letter, and he addresses us in the name of his Lord and ours by beginning with a greeting to those who are elect exiles. Elect exiles, that was true for them, for these believers who were scattered throughout Turkey, and it is true for us as well. And then he continued with the introduction that we saw already now in verses 1 through 12 of this first chapter. In that, he celebrated the great salvation that we have now in Jesus and the great salvation that we will receive from the Lord as well. And so he's in effect saying to the people who are receiving the letter then and to us now, that right now, at the present time, you may, in fact, be experiencing the life of an exile. You might be dispersed. You might be scattered around the area. and You might be scattered around the world. You might be experiencing the various kinds of trials that are spoken of here. But the fact of the matter is that we have been born again into a living hope with a sure inheritance as was foreseen and foretold by the prophets. It's an old story that is being retold to people in every generation. The next step in Peter then makes complete sense. Where we go in this letter, where he takes us in this letter makes complete sense because there's a very fundamental question. Okay, if that is the fact, if that is the truth, then how do I live in this time right now, in the time that exists between having received salvation and the time then at which, at the end, we will receive all of the fullness of salvation? How do we go about living in this world right now? Hear the apostolic word spoken to you. Therefore, Preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy." And if you call on him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Let's pray. 
Lord, we thank you for this great salvation, this mighty work that you have done, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we pray that today, as we receive this instruction, you would help every single one of us here to bow before it, to accept it, to receive it, to hear it as your word spoken to us. We pray this in your name. Amen. All right, let's be honest as we move into this section of Peter's letter. There is something inside of us that recoils at the very idea of someone telling us what to do. When someone says, you need to do this, there's an equal and opposite reaction to that statement in our lives. It doesn't matter. Well, maybe it does matter. I hope it matters. Whether it's your boss, your doctor, your dentist, your hygienist, the government, a parent, or a pastor. But there's something in us that when in any of those roles someone says to us, this is what you need to do and you must do this now, we find it to a certain extent repulsive, repugnant to us. We find this idea of submission, of subjection, to be just a hard pill for us to swallow as people. In fact, in fact, we often pride ourselves in that very spirit. I'm just not the kind of person who listens to other people. I'm the kind of person who thinks through things on my own and makes my own decisions and does what I think is the best thing to do. That's the kind of person I am. We pride ourselves on an independent spirit that will not submit to what others have to say. Now, remember what I said a few weeks ago, that in the opening 12 verses of this letter, we don't find any imperatives or commands that are given to us. And I said to you then, don't worry, they will come. They're not coming for a while here, but they will come. And in fact, that just changed in what I read for us, because in what I just read for us this morning, there are in fact three imperatives that are given to us. One is to set your hope fully on the grace that is to be revealed to us. Two is to be holy. And three is to conduct yourselves in fear. Now, just as a quick parenthesis, uh, this is going to be a two-part sermon, so I'm not going to be, I didn't want to cheat any part of this great text that's before us today. I'm going to focus on the imperatives today. I'll come back to uh, verses 18 through 21 a little bit more next week. But we've got three comprehensive imperatives that are here, and if we continue to read, and, and when I say continue to read, if, if we would have just read one more verse, we would have seen a fourth imperative, namely that we are to love one another in verse 22. Now, Peter's going to get more specific in the chapters to come. He's going to break these down more specifically and show us what it means to do exactly each one of these things. But for now, these imperatives, these three, these four imperatives, they lay the groundwork for us, and they flow out of exactly what he has just said in verses 1 through 12. I'm not going to do this in detail, but what you're going to see immediately is the connection to everything that he's just told you about the great salvation 
that we have in Christ. He's going to talk about hope. He's going to talk about being born again into a new family. He's going to talk about the inheritance that we have. He's going to talk about the salvation that we have been granted as well. He's given to us all of those things in Christ. The Lord has given them all to us, and now we're going to get, to, to get the response to each and every one of those things. That's why we have the therefore that starts off this section. Therefore, in verse 13, it's the connection, it's the bridge to the marvelous saving work that he's just, just described for us. The marvelous saving work of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And now he's going to call for an appropriate response on the part of those of us who are the benefactors, the beneficiaries of this great salvation that has been given to us. Because this salvation, we the beneficiaries of it, it was done for our sake. Did you catch that when I read that there in verse 20? He was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. And I've listened to Rob's sermon from last week online, and Rob emphasized that, that this salvation is for you. It's for you. It's personal. It is for you. It's about Jesus and for you. Did I get those prepositions right? It's about Jesus, and it is for you, the people of God. Therefore, therefore, he's going to say, uh, this is how we are to live in light of it. So, if you're familiar with Scripture, you know that in the book of Romans, the therefore comes at the beginning of chapter 12. So we've got 11 chapters before the therefore comes. Uh, in Ephesians, the therefore comes in Ephesians chapter 4 in the middle of that letter. In Colossians, it comes a little bit earlier in Colossians chapter 2. Personally, one of the things that I really love about 1 Peter is that though this therefore comes fairly early in the book, one of the things that Peter does to me uniquely and a little bit different from Paul is he's very comfortable tacking back and forth between the good news of the salvation of the gospel, of the salvation that God has accomplished, and then the imperatives, the what are we supposed to do with this aspect that comes and flows out of it. So I really like the way it integrates, even though I'm going to preach the next section uh, next week instead of this week as well. It is absolutely essential for us not to skip over the intro, not to skip over what we have just done over the past four weeks now in looking at verses 1 through 12. It's important to do that in preaching, not to skip over it in preaching. But frankly, it is more important for you, for me, not to skip over that in the practice of our Christian lives, in the outworking of our Christian lives, in the life and heart that we have, we cannot skip over the salvation that has been purchased for us by the triune God because there is a danger. There's a danger in doing exactly that. And let me give you a little bit of an illustration of that. I want to talk about letters that we receive in the mail. If you're an adult here, you'll understand what I'm talking about. But I want you to imagine that you have received a, a letter in the mail, and this letter can be from one of three uh, 
organizations will say. On, on the one hand, the letter can be from your alma mater, or the letter can be from the local volunteer fire department, or the letter can be from your favorite charity. Pick whatever charity that is. Now, if you are, as I said, if you're an adult and you've gone through mail like this, you know what the narrative structure, what the plot line of that letter is going to be before you've even opened it up, right? You know what it's going to be. You're going to open up that letter, and it's going to give you a greeting, and then it's going to thank those who have been participants in the work of whatever ministry, fire department, uh, college, university that that was, uh, and then it's going to explain to you the great things that they've been doing. Okay, and they're, they're going to talk about the programs that they've had, the successes uh, that they've had, maybe even the struggles that they've had. But if you're as cynical as I sometimes am, when you get that letter in your hand, you're just waiting, right? You know that embedded in that letter is the ask. At some point, you're going to get to the ask. Sometimes we don't even read what comes before the ask. We just scan down and we go, okay, right. And sometimes the way it works in our household, and, and again, if I'm, if I'm, I'm sorry if I'm disillusioning anyone here about uh, our sanctification and reading letters like that, but the reality is either Lauren or I, Lauren usually will say, say from the opposite room, honey, it's a letter from fill in the blank, do we want to give to him right now? Okay, and, and that's the extent of it. I, I'll skip over the intro. So forgive me uh, for that if that's the case. But here's the point. Here's the point. With the gospel of Jesus Christ, with the letters that are given to us in the New Testament, we can never, ever, ever do that. It's deadly if we do that. If we skip 1 to 12 and say, Peter, what do you really want? Oh, man, that will suck the life out of us as believers in Jesus Christ. Because you can't hear these things that he's commanding us to do apart from the great salvation that has been given to us in Jesus Christ. To do so would simply be deadly to our faith, deadly to our joy, to our peace, perhaps deadly even to the hope of salvation that we have in Christ. Peter has apostolic imperatives for us. Peter is going to tell us what to do. He's going to get right up in our business and say, this is what you need to do as the people of God living in this world as elect exiles. He's going to tell us what to do. He's going to command us what to do. And he's going to say to us, and I'm just giving you the tip off now because it's coming, even though this is the intro to it, he's going to tell us to submit. And oh, man, that's a hard word for us to hear. But that's what he's going to tell us to do as this letter moves along. It's true. But it will always, always be wrapped in the mighty work of the Father through the Son applied by the Spirit. Always, the biblical writers, the biblical pattern is to wrap arms around us in the great redemption that God has accomplished on our behalf, and then say, and here's your response to this grace that has been shown to you. Many writers put it well. This is from Edmund Clowney. Quote, the imperatives of Christian living always begin with therefore, 
Peter does not begin to exhort Christian pilgrims until he has celebrated the wonders of God's salvation in Jesus Christ. The indicative of what God has done for us and in us precedes the imperative of what we are called to do for him. Without the indicative of what God does, the imperative is addressed to a helpless sinner, the victim of his illusions, It becomes a commandment that crushes or that drives to vain and presumptuous efforts. Our hope is God's gift, an inheritance created for us by Christ's resurrection. Because we have been given hope, we are called to live in it. End quote. Because we've been given hope, we are called to live in that which we have been given. We've been given living hope. We have been given a promised inheritance. We have been born again into a new family. We have been gifted salvation. We have been given a story, and Peter says the origins of this story that you're now a part of are in fact not just with Israel, although as Rob noted, he's wrapping us all up in the language of Israel, but the origins are this story that you're a part of that is for your sake is in fact before the foundations of the world. That's when the story started that brings you to this point where we are today and to the end point as well. So as we said at the beginning, though we may in fact be presently exiles, though we might be dispersed from wherever our home was, though in fact we may be experiencing various trials, though we may feel and actually be marginalized as the people of God, though we may not be part of the power structures of society or the power structures of our community or even the power structures of our own homes, though you may find yourself being a slave in the northernmost part of Turkey who has never even met Peter and certainly never saw Jesus, Though you may find yourself to be the wife of an unbelieving husband out there in the hinterland and wondering, what in the world am I supposed to do? Is this what the faith is supposed to look like? Is this the promise of the inheritance? Though you may be experiencing all of those things, as Joel Green says, nonetheless, you are at the heart of God's will. It doesn't matter how far you've been flung. It doesn't matter how marginal you feel you are or marginal you actually are right now. You are, in fact, at the heart of the will of God. It is for your sake, for your sake, that this is taking place. So therefore, set your hope fully. Set your hope fully on the grace that is to be given to you. Hope is a gift. Two weeks ago, I said this of faith, and nearly a year ago now, in the sermon series before Christmas, I said this of hope as well. Hope is a gift, and hope is a muscle. It's a muscle. It's something that has to be trained and 
it has to be grown and has to be strengthened. And in order to do that, you have to use it, you have to work it, and that's why something that is a gift, you've been born again into a living hope, turns into an imperative right now. You've been given it, it's great that you have it, it's great that you've been given to it, and now you've got to work that thing. Now you have got to use it and develop it and grow it in your lives. Peter gives two ways of strengthening this hope, of setting this hope. He says in verse 13 there, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. Preparing your minds for action. If you've got your ESVs open uh, right now, you might have a little bit of a footnote under preparing your minds for action. And if so, that footnote would say to you, gird up the loins of your mind. That's the literal translation of what's here in the Greek. Gird up the loins of your mind. And that points to a number of places. In one sense, it's a, it's a very simple thing. It's just out of our common experience. It's if you're wearing long, flowing robes, if you're getting ready to do something, you've got to hike those up and tuck them into your belt so that you're ready, that you're prepared for action. In fact, it's applied specifically to Israel at the time of the Passover. So you're to eat the Passover with your sandals on, with your staff at the ready, with your loins girded. Tuck it up in. You've got to be ready. And Jesus uses the exact same analogy or the exact same metaphor to describe being ready for the people of God as well. This is what Jesus says in Luke chapter 12. Stay dressed for action, gird up the loins, and keep your lamps burning, and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Gird up the loins of your mind. Hope and the exercise of hope and to live well in a living hope requires structured, disciplined thinking. It requires thinking that is soaked in the Word of God so that you think clearly about what is taking place in the world and what is your hope that is to come as well. Uh, one writer, Karen Jobes, I, I, I like the way she has this, just a very simple illustration for us. Girding up loins makes no sense uh, to us. That's why it's always changed to something, get your mind ready. Uh, it, basically, roll up your sleeves. Gird up the loins of your mind, roll up the sleeves of your mind. Get ready to get to work with every part of your being, and mind here encompassing the will as well. And then a big part of that process of how you're setting your hope by being sober-minded is, in fact, that we be sober-minded. Okay, so, so gird up the loins of your mind and be sober-minded. Now, one writer says it this way to explain being sober-minded. Do not be anesthetized by the attractions of this world. To be sober-minded is to be not anesthetized by the attractions of this world. Drunkenness causes one to not feel in the same way, to not think in a clear-headed way. Uh, Edmund Clowney writes again, drunken stupor is the refuge of those who have no hope. 
Why do people bury problems in alcohol? Well, they bury problems in alcohol because it anesthetizes us. It makes us feel like, okay, everything's okay. I don't need to think about that anymore. I don't need to worry about that anymore. Now, if you're one who has a problem with alcohol um, and drinking yourself into a stupor, then you can apply this like that. Uh, but I know most of us here, maybe that's not our particular struggle. Maybe that's not your particular struggle. But there are plenty of things that we can do in this world that have that same effect of bringing us into a desensitized stupor in the world that is around us. One can, for example, bury themselves in sports, bury themselves in all kinds of details as if this is an important and a meaningful thing in this world, significant in some way. One can become anesthetized to this world through social media and through an absorption in social media, if not for you, perhaps then for another generation. One can become anesthetized or can, can saturate themselves with news in this world. Or just put it this way, we can become drunk with just our phones and whatever you're doing on your phone. You know, that the thing that you sit down passively, the moment you sit down, the moment you have a moment, you sit down and you pull out your phone and you go like this, and you open it up and just see what's going on. Whether it's social media, whether it's news, whether it's sports, uh, whether it's shopping or a deal to be had, there are plenty of things in this world that can bring us into that kind of a stupor. But to be sober-minded is to be biblically realistic, to be alert, to be focused, and to be aware. So Peter says, first imperative, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if I asked you right now, have you received God's grace? If I said to you, are you a recipient of God's grace? Do you know of God's grace? You'd say, yeah, I, I hope you say yes. I hope you say yes, amen. I, I know the grace of God. I love the grace of God. It's amazing grace. It's marvelous grace. It's wondrous grace that the Lord has given to us. And Peter says, listen, set it on the grace that will be brought to you. That will be brought to you. You think you've got a lot of grace now? Wait to the coming of Jesus Christ. Set your mind on the grace that gets poured out upon your life at that moment. To which one might even imagine that we would go, wow, I didn't know what grace was till this day. I didn't know how good it felt until the return, until the day of Jesus Christ. Next imperative, be holy as he who called you is holy. We are now by faith the children of our holy father. We used to be the children of disobedience. That's a Pauline phrase. We used to be the children of disobedience, but now we are children of obedience. And this gets at the idea of being born again. Peter says, you've been born again into a new family. Well, as being born again into a new family, you've got a new father. You've got a new father, and the father that you have, he is a holy father. We used to be ignorant. We didn't know. We were driven 
throughout this world by our own passions. We weren't driven by the law of God that we read earlier. We were driven by doing what we wanted to do. Whatever that passion was, that's the thing that drove us. We used to live, as Peter describes it, in futile ways. In ways that we thought added up to a lot. We all thought that some way these perhaps added up into significance, but there's no significance in those things. Those were futile ways, and those were ways that we inherited. Okay, right, we're, now we're going to wrap the inheritance language back into this. We inherited those futile ways from our forefathers. But now, our Father has secured for us a new inheritance through the obedience of his only son through the rebirth given to us by the spirit of god a new father a holy father and peter says now walk in his ways the law of god was given to israel it was given to israel as we've noted earlier today while israel was in the wilderness israel had been delivered out of the oppression and out of the bondage that they had in Egypt, but they were not yet in the land that was promised to them. They had not yet, in other words, received the inheritance that was promised to them. That place where Israel was when the law of God is spoken to them is the same place where we are right now. We've been delivered out of the bondage, out of the oppression that belongs to sin, we are not yet in possession or full possession of the inheritance of the land that will be ours. And the command comes to Israel in that setting, and the command comes to us as well as Peter quotes it, what do you do when you're between those places? Be holy, for I am holy. The Lord your God is holy. He's quoting there from uh, uh, several places in the book of Leviticus. And the, the command that is given there is for a pervasive holiness. If we were to go back and look at those places in Leviticus, I put a few on the front of your bulletin just to give us a taste of that. But as we saw over the course of this summer, part of the command to be holy was uh, the application of the dietary laws that were there. Part of the command to be holy as the Lord was holy was lived out in your family life, in relationship to your spouse, in relationship to your children, or with respect to your parents. Part of the command to be holy like the Lord was how do you live in holiness with your neighbors, with those who are around you. Peter says, be holy, for the Lord your God is holy. Now, we know that being holy as an individual, being holy as a family, being holy as a community, as the church, that would be a good thing in and of itself, right? It would bring glory to God if we were holy individually or holy as a community. It would bring enjoyment to us as well. But holiness has another object to it or objective to it as well. Be holy is not just a command that belongs to us for our sakes, but for the sake of, in Israel's case, the surrounding nations, the people who are around, the way, the means by which you are a blessing to those nations who are around you is by being different from them, by being distinct from them, separated from them. 
to a certain extent at least. And so what Peter is saying here to these people is, listen, you're exiles, and even in your exile, even in the fact that you don't fit in this world, there's purpose to it. Because the purpose is that the people who are in the world, who seem to fit in, would be drawn out of the world into the community that doesn't seem to fit because it's the only community that's going to last. I'm sorry, I know that's a mouthful of singing it around and how you're saying it there, but I trust that it just, it just makes sense what he's saying. He's calling them to a life that will make them different, that will, if you will, highlight their stranger pilgrim uh, status. And yet he's calling it to them, not only for themselves, but he's calling them to it for the sake of the community that is around as well. He'll apply this specifically in the chapters to come. And finally, <clears throat> Peter commands us in verse 17 to conduct ourselves with fear during the time of our, out of our exile. Conduct ourselves with fear. Now, this is not a paralyzing fear, but it's a recognition of the role of a father who has, in fact, created us for good works, Paul, Ephesians 2.10, and who will, in fact, perfectly judge and justly judge the quality of our works. Peter says, that is coming. Do you believe that that is coming? Do you believe, do you understand that a testing of your works, a judgment of your works is coming? Conduct yourselves, therefore, with fear. It is going to be done by your Father. Now, I know as believers, we kind of go, wait a minute, I thought that perfect love casts out all fear. And so we go, well, how are we to make sense of this? And the way that we do it oftentimes is by saying fear means reverence right? Fear means reverence. We should revere the Lord in that sense in preparation. Well, I, I like what one writer says uh, uh, about this. Here, here's the quote. Reverence, however, can be watered down so that it becomes rather insipid, really tasteless. So fear means a lot, and we get fear. Reverence, eh, I don't know. I, it, it can just be watered down and so perhaps instead of just for us immediately translating, wait, 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 I shouldn't be afraid of anything, I shouldn't have any fear, I should revere the Lord, maybe a better way to think about this is what we might call a healthy fear, right? An appropriate fear. You were probably taught this as a kid, right? To have a healthy fear of certain things. When I think of that phrase in my own childhood, that applies to water. Have a healthy fear of water. I love water. I love the ocean. I love the bay, etc. I love water, but water can kill you. And so you need to have a healthy fear of the water uh, as well. A healthy fear. Here's the question then. Do you have a healthy fear of God? Do you have a healthy fear of the judgment of your works? Does that impact your conduct? Do you ever think about the fact that, you know what, I should fear God in what I'm doing here because it's going to be judged? Do you expect and anticipate judgment, divine, impartial, perfect evaluation of your works? Peter says you should. You should, and you should therefore conduct yourselves with fear, with a good, healthy fear. So we've got three imperatives here. Set your hope, be holy and conduct ourselves with fear. 
Now, I have a lot of times already now in this sermon said that Peter is telling us these things. And of course, I, as uh, your pastor, am preaching these things. But all of us have got to realize that behind Peter, behind a pastor declaring this, this is the word of God. This is the word of God that is being commanded to us to say, listen, these are imperatives for your lives. These are not suggestions for your lives. I am telling you, as God Almighty, to do these things. I, the Lord, who have brought to you eternal comfort and good hope and grace, am telling you to do these things. To set your hope, to be holy, to conduct yourselves with fear. If you walk away from here today, if I walk away from here today, and for the rest of this week, you don't think anything about one word that was said here. You don't think about how to pursue holiness. You don't think about how to set your mind and set your hope. You don't think about how to live your life in fear. If you don't do that, it's the old rebellious spirit. It's the old rebel spirit in you that is saying, I'm not going to do it. I appreciate it, but I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to listen to it. Instead, instead of that, let us walk in a way that is consistent with the new family of which we are a part, the new family name that we have been given. Let us walk in the living hope that has been given to us, that has been secured by Christ. That's the call that Peter, sorry, that's the call that the Lord has for us today. Lord, we pray that you would help us to be a people who, when we hear from you, when we hear your word, would be a people who are anxious to do what your word says. We recognize what goes on, the battle that goes on in our heart and mind, but Lord, through the power that is at work within us, the power of the resurrected Jesus applied to us by your living spirit, overcome the old man, the old woman inside of us, and let us walk strongly after you. We pray this in Jesus' great name. Amen.